Hey Immigrantly fam, welcome back. This is Sadia Khan with another very important episode. For those joining me for the first time, this podcast is unlike others. It bears witness to the extraordinariness of the immigrant experience and beyond and engages listeners through authentic storytelling. I believe that stories are most tenable when told as first-person accounts and that's what we do here in this space. Now today in honor of Black History Month and to pay homage to the African contribution to American food, I am re-releasing another gem from the Immigrantly Vault. It's my interview with Steven Satterfield. This conversation profoundly impacted how I view African cuisine in America. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did when it happened and even now as I revisited with all of you. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Immigrantly, a weekly podcast about deeply personal conversations on race, identity, multiculturalism and the general messiness of being human. I am your host Adia Khan. Thank you for taking time out of your day to spend it with me and my thoughts. My voice today sounds a bit nasally because I'm not feeling that great, so bear with me. Before we dive in, I want to share something profound with you. Recently, I was on a panel with notable activists to discuss ways to enact collective social consciousness. Sounds important, right? Many things resonated with me during our discussion, but one thing that really stood out was a comment made by one of the panelists, Rebbie Kern. Rebbie, among other things, is the Director of Education Policy for Equality North Carolina. They work at the intersection of race and gender identity. They said something powerful, and I wanted to share it with the larger immigrantly community. And I'm rephrasing here, but they said that when we meet people, instead of asking them, how are you doing, we should ask them, how is your heart today? And what do you need? Think about it. Those words basically change everything. They open up space to hold more real, honest emotions because the truth is, we often appear just fine, but our hearts are swelling and heavy and we need to acknowledge that. So I'm asking everyone this thing. How is your heart today? I want you to know, I see you, I hear you. Our platform is not only about uplifting my voice or guests' experiences, but also about creating an affirming space for all you listeners. Talking about the platform, today on Immigrantly, we will focus on food. Lots of it. Now, those of you who know me know that I am not a great cook, nor even interested in cooking, but I am a foodie and love to eat anything and everything. The other day, I cooked biryani for my daughter. Well, if you don't know what that is, Google it. 
Surprisingly, it turned out well. In today's episode, however, instead of just discussing the flavors and taste, we will do a deep dive into how food can be used as a catalyst for change and trace the journey of African-American food in the U.S. Our guest, Stephen Satterfield, dedicates his career to organizing, activating and educating people about the origins and cultures of food. He's the founder of Whetstone, a food magazine and media company that explores recipes and food cultures of both past and present. Writer, publisher, producer, former sommelier and social entrepreneur, Stephen is disrupting the food canon in more ways than few. He has a docu-series out on Netflix called High on the Hog that explores the foundation of American cooking through the lens of Southern culture and African people. But our legacy isn't found in statues or history books. It lives on in the people who guard the gates of our culture. Thank you so much, Stephen, for coming on Immigrantly. I am really excited because I have plenty of questions for you. So how are you doing? I'm fantastic. How are you? I am good. It's interesting. I asked you something and then I took a pause because in the intro, I talk about how I met this amazing activist, Rebbi Kern, who said that when we ask people how they're doing, instead, we should ask them, how is your heart today? And that makes a huge difference. I'm going to rephrase it. How is your heart today? Thank you for that. My heart is full today. I have been feeling very fortunate of late and just reflecting on how happy I am about so much in my life right now and what a privilege that is. Wonderful. So let's start with High on the Hog. It's a docu-series based on historian and cookbook author Jessica B. Harris's namesake book. And I am watching it. You're the host of the show, which basically chronicles this thrilling history of triumph and survival through lens of origins of African cuisine in America and its impact on American cuisine generally, right? But it talks about food. It's all food, right? Mm -hmm. And to me, food is a common language. Food is what all of us want, what all of us need. Tell me what meaning did food hold for you growing up? What sort of people and experiences do you explicitly connect with food? Yeah, well, much like yourself, I, I also think that it is a common language. When I was growing up, the language in my household was about connecting around meals, holidays, and occasions. It was the center of our family life. My dad was the primary cook in the family, as was my maternal grandmother. So unfortunately, my grandmother passed when I was young. And in that passing, our household really became the new center for family gatherings. And so I really grew up seeing my father in the kitchen and our kitchen kind of being the heartbeat of all of our familial 
convenings. So that was happening on a personal level, or I guess a familial level. And on a personal level, I was growing up around the rise of the Food Network in the late 90s, just became increasingly interested in American food culture and history. And I ended up going to culinary school as a teenager. And yeah, that's kind of what set off my whole professional journey in food. So I was doing some research on your journey, Stephen, and it seems like you started with wine. You were a sommelier and it was basically origins of wine first before you switched to what you're doing right now, tracing the origins of African cuisine in America and obviously its impact on American cuisine. Why did you decide to look into origins of food in general? Yeah, origins for me is an adaptation of something that I learned as a young sommelier. It's a widely known concept of terroir, which is a place-based relationship around mostly products, agricultural products, cultural products that are representative of a place. In my case, in my studies, it was about wine. Terroir is a framework of understanding and it gives us a means of assessing quality in relationship to tradition, the tradition of a place. People in the wine industry talk about it so frequently that it is the kind of central organizing principle of, of the entire world of wine. And so I started to think about this in my own life and thinking about the terroir applied to matters of social justice or just human beings, where we come from, where our problems originate, the conflicts, etc. And so from that framework, yeah, I mean, you know, I think using the word origin is a bit more accessible for many as a extrapolation of the same idea, but really looking at where we've come from as a basis of understanding for individuals and as, you know, a collective people, people in community and in societies and in cultural and ethnic groupings. As I said in the beginning, I'm watching High on the Hog. Fascinating docuseries. I highly recommend it. And it's really interesting to see how you're trying to recreate the footsteps of your ancestors while you're creating new memories at the same time. So you start in Benin, then in episode two, you jump to, I believe, South Carolina to detail the voyage of your ancestors. I am curious to know, how did this physical movement, transatlantic physical movement, change your perception of the American you know, what's funny is like, I've been answering these questions for a year and I, I still feel differently almost every time I really reflect back on, on experience. Like I doubt that I've given even the same answer twice around this. And really that's just because it's so hard to articulate that experience. And it brings up so much because it, it was so many different things. 
as a black man from the U.S. South, from Atlanta. It was a surreal thing to be there with a woman who has been intellectual idol, a hero, and then, you know, the context of a Netflix docuseries underpinning the whole thing, trying to derive takeaways. I really just tried to be present and actually that took so much. I think there were lessons around the voyage, but I think the biggest lessons were just the powerful emotional impact of being on the continent in that way. It's not a thing that you can anticipate. And so I think that was just kind of humbling to be so overwhelmed by this, by a homecoming. As an immigrant in the U.S., I've always felt like I am an outsider, insider, right? Because of my multi-hyphenated identity, I'm never fully American, and I'm no longer fully Pakistani either, because I've evolved and I've grown so much since I left Pakistan. And every time I go back to Pakistan, it just is revisiting and recreating those memories. But for you, you said something which was so profound that it's home, home that you had never been to before. That really struck a chord because I see that in my kids when they go back. I don't have children, so I can only imagine what a trip that must be through your children's eyes. But yeah, you know, I think that sense of returning to the place of your ancestors is not an experience that is obviously just for Black people. That is a universal phenomenon, and it is a diasporic phenomenon. I think that's part of why so many people connected with the material. It's because that feeling of returning to a place for the first time, it's a cellular experience. It's really difficult to articulate, and yet it's so palpable. It's so real. Were there any surprises along the way? Like, did you find something or discover something that you were not expecting at all? I really don't know. I feel that I am very good at having no expectations. Me ending up on Netflix has just been such an improbable journey. You know, I started this print magazine five years ago with no money, with no fanfare or enthusiasm about the, the launch <laughs> of the magazine. In fact, a lot of people cautioning me against it. You know, print is dead. Are you sure you want to do this, etc.? So to have been in the situation where we get to now reflect back on the series, the whole time it was happening, it was just so surreal. Being in such a surreal state at all times, it becomes its own kind of stupor. 
as far as like memories or surprises or even engaging with the material, I really just had to focus on <laughs> uh, being present and and trying to allow this this work to move through me because anything beyond that was really just too big for my mind to grasp. I would start to think too much. When you start to think on camera, people can tell. You don't right. look like you're in a natural, relaxed dialogue or something like that. And since I'm not an actor, you know, it clearly wouldn't have been performative. And you would just be looking like tense or pensive. So yeah, I was just trying to be in the zone. In fact, I, I can't be in the zone in my own life in the way that I was in the filming of, of that season. And that's really because of the magnitude of the experience was so massive that the only way that I could make it through was just to submit to it and just be fully present. First of all, you looked quite relaxed. It seemed as if you were enjoying every minute. It's a visual delight when we see food and your connection with food. And I remember one scene where you pour okra soup on the back of your hand. Okra is African because it made the voyage with us. It did. We brought it to the new world. To taste it, something that I saw my mother and my grandmother and my aunts doing, right? So it's like you just put it on the back of your hand or on the palm, and that's how you taste food. The minute I saw it, I was like, oh my gosh, this transcends cultural, ethnic, geographic boundaries. So talking about cuisine, I want to pivot a little and talk about a specific cuisine in the U.S. When we think of the hierarchy of cuisines in the U.S., French cuisine is at the top of the list. It seems, at least to me, that previously France was the center of culinary endeavor, or at least it was made out to be one. How has the introduction and normalization of various international cuisines changed people's perception or reverence for French cuisine in America. Do you see a shift? It's such a fascinating question because we are living through a shift, a philosophical shift about good food and restaurants and chefs and so on. But, you know, the notion that French food is has been aspirational to the degree it's been aspirational in the U.S., I think maybe from like a domestic wife, mother perspective in like the, the 70s, I'm thinking about the influence of people like Julia Child on US food culture. So maybe like mid 20th century. But as far as, you know, contemporary food culture, going out to restaurants and stuff like that, it's not that folks in the States are enamored with French food it's that the professional class of chefs and all of the accreditations and curriculum that we've all decided is based on French food. And this, is, this remains true today. If you're 
beautiful children wanted to enroll in a culinary school today, the curriculum that they would be given would situate them in a kitchen hierarchy with a vocabulary that was all derivative of French cooking, even still. I think that we're just in an interesting transitional moment where on the consumer side and because of media technology of course the world getting smaller etc we are kind of all deciding together that that is stupid right <laughs> so that is good that we're deciding that but we are not yet at a place where we have better alternatives embedded like in the infrastructure of culinary education. Unfortunately, we're still kind of in a stuck place as far as a global hierarchy because the people that we still consider to be the best chefs in the world, they've still are descendants from this culinary tradition. I don't actually know what comes next, but I think we are actually not close to a place where French cooking on a the professional tip isn't going to remain the house language of of the industry. I don't think that's changing anytime soon, even as the culture more broadly has and continues to change. So as someone who studies origins of food and their place in different cultures, why do you think French cuisine assumed that place? Because to be honest, when I taste French cuisine, it's just okay. I come from a culture that's rich in flavors and texture, and it involves meticulous cooking. You're asking the right questions, honestly. Yeah, I agree. Your food history is a lot more interesting. I mean, yeah, in Europe, people were pretty much eating grains, so wheat and meat. That's the European diet, right? Especially compared to places like the UK or like England, where there was not a great culinary tradition. There was not for a long time uh, the use of spice and sugar in a culinary context that made things taste delicious. Mm. <laughs> and so when compared to what was happening throughout Europe, you know, a place like France that really did have a, a different type of reverence for culinary artistry with techniques and integrations. I think from a European context, it makes sense that French cuisine became the aspirational cuisine. I always, you know, look at the United States as like, I mean, look at our mother, right? We are derivative of this colonial inheritance for the same reason that we're talking about mid 20th century housewives wanting to cook like French women or in the 90s or whenever they were doing like the French lady diet. There's always been this kind of fascination that I think English and um, United Stations have with French food as a mark of sophistication. 
Absolutely. Not just that. Think about French accent. Yeah, that too, right? Right. I mean, in hierarchy of accents, again, French accent, British accent, it just is at the top of the list, right? Well, because language is one of the ways that a dominant culture gets to assert its dominance. I mean, some of the least literate people in the so-called Western world are from the United States because we've had the privilege of just assuming it doesn't matter what country you're born in, you're going to speak English. And if you don't, that has nothing to do with us. It really is a way to assume power. And the same thing like in the States where we see language as a way to exploit a lot of language and advertising and popular culture, internet culture, language, etc. comes from Black people, comes from Black American people. It comes from our music and from our our heroes and it gets brought into the culture in a way that it can be profited upon without actually benefiting the originators of the language. So the language becomes a way to to mock, to exploit and to assert power and also in talking about French people to be swept up in some aspirational European romance language fantasy. Stephen, this is a great segue into my next question because I was going to ask you about how racism is commodified in the US, right? So we see consumption of turmeric and ghee, yoga, hip hop, you name it. But at the same time, we are erasing their history. We are not honoring originators of these traditions. And we're in a way recolonizing all those traditions. We are repackaging them as new, which is not true. Mm -hmm. How do we begin to address this erasure as a product of white supremacy? Oh, wow. Such an important question. I mean, first of all, I think we need to understand and are starting to better understand the value of our respective culture. And when I say our, I'm just talking, let's say people of the global majority, right? Or previously marginalized groups, whatever nomenclature you prefer. What ends up happening in the most like raw terms is that these are just demonstrations in power. And so the ways in which, you know, marginalized groups are impacted are so wide ranging and so far flung. It's impossible to try and address them in terms of its breadth and it's much easier to say, how are we not being impacted by this? This racism, this casteism, discrimination, the segregation, this violence, this disenfranchisement. As far as like a reclamation of power, or I guess how can we, it's, 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 there's many levels to it, you know, so... There is first, a, I think, a recla- an acknowledgement, a recognition before there can be reclamation, right? So the first thing is recognizing the dynamics, taking back power, saying, actually, I don't have to or want to participate in these 
harmful structures in any longer. And so now that is the reclamation. We're taking back our culture and our power. And that's what we talk about when we talk about origin work, because origin work is an acknowledgement of who has been omitted from the story, right? That's that's reclaiming, that's reclamation. And so where is the power in that? How do we use that to take power? Story is what dominant cultures use to maintain power and they use their language to do it like we talked about which is why you get ridiculed if you don't speak the language because it's a way of of belonging and, and building walls and all of, all of this and so the power that we have as as global majority populations who define culture from turmeric to hip-hop we are i think beginning to see the power in that and it is up to those of us who hold positions of privilege and relative power who have platforms of various sizes to think about upliftment as part of the mandate of our work and not just success and not just getting on and creating the same systems that made it hard for us to have access to opportunity to begin with. Yeah, but at the same time, I think it's important for the dominant population to do some work as well, right? Because it is tiring that you and I are doing all the work to understand where we're coming from and what lessons they need to learn. So what do you think? How do they pay homage to the originators of, say, African cuisine, what would that look like? Well, I mean, for me personally, I'm a bit more jaded about the prospects of folks changing insofar as, like, there's a lot of information out there. It doesn't mean that I am ever going to stop, persuade people that we won't make media with a strong and clear point of view that is about reclamation and empowerment and upliftment and origin foraging, et cetera. I don't expect people to change who don't want to change. And that's not where my power comes from. My power comes from building with the people who we share the same worldview and we're trying to build for the same world and the asking for permission or trying to persuade or hoping that people in dominant populations who either use it to exploit or really even just to be complicit in, in their passivity, in their silence, the harm is the same. And so I am not sure what the utility is in trying to persuade when we have so much evidence that so many are so far gone in seeing the humanity of others. You know, those stories are so entrenched. Hopefully we can reach the next generation, but for a lot of times with the grown-ups, especially with the bifurcation of information and the internet and the social communities that reinforce our respective worldviews, I use words like pessimistic, but I wish I could say it in a way that didn't have a connotation that was negative. I just more like ambivalent, like 
that 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 is not where I see meaningful change coming from in changing hearts and minds. I see change coming from building sources of powers within our community, setting clear blueprints and roadmaps that can be followed and replicated and just like unapologetically taking over and knowing that we have that power and capacity and like tapping into it. And reminding folks that whatever they're consuming, it's important to look at the origins of it. When we think of African cuisine in America, there's a term used, soul food, and that was used during your documentary as well. We call our food soul food. Cheers. This type of food, you can feel when you eat it. Ah, aroma. Do you think it is restricting or do you think it is representative of the African cuisine in general? I think that the term is both descriptive and restrictive. You know, the origins of that term are reflective of political movement that was happening in the U.S. Of around the same time, the Black Power movement, which is you know, a response to racial segregation, violence, and just, you know, a fight for um, human and political rights. And so the language of soul is an echo of that Black Power movement of the 1960s. It is descriptive in that, you know, those are the origins. The food itself also comes from that time in a way of almost hybridized cooking where we you know have grown up with some or in a post-industrial society where some of our food now comes from cans so there's like a amalgamation of homemade and convenience starting to happen and so over the years, this just becomes a shorthand for talking about African-American food, especially white people have a very hard time of seeing anything other than just like black or brown or Asian. There's no nuance. And even in our, in our own communities too, you know, because we have grown up with the very strong kinship to this cuisine, and we're in a country where we can't have anything, we ourselves identify, self-identify with the cuisine as like our thing. And so we, we end up limiting our own imagination around the full breadth and impact of our diet and our culture and our history, et cetera. Now, a very fantastic thing happening in the US is a lot of black chefs are just like, nah, I'm good on that. I don't do soul food or I'm not going to answer questions about soul food. They're, they're just really um, pushing back in a way. The chefs now are so, not just the talent is off the hook, but like they're just so informed. There's so much in conversation and in dialogue in the way that the chefs are engaging, especially Black chefs and chefs of color engaging with their diasporic work, their own influences, that we're really starting to get a much more nuanced picture of Black food. 
going back to your documentary you talk about rice you talk about black pepper now when i think of rice i associate it with asia because i grew up there and for me it's like you know if it's not basmati rice i am not going to eat it <laughs> but it was just fascinating to see where the food originated in africa and asia and how it was brought here and those are the things that we should be talking about more at least what i've taken from that documentary and generally is that having conversations that others are not having exactly that would require knowledge proper attribution yeah i i couldn't agree more you know in africa there are over 2000 grains and you know what i mean uh, other types of botanicals like it we're talking about the continent of africa the breadth of diversity from the continent is immense and we've just like brought it to this incredibly myopic space that's erased centuries of history and food tradition and ingredients and so origin also becomes a way not just to reclaim but to honor honor exactly and that is so important we've talked about some serious important stuff but i want to talk about something fun now if you had 24 hours to plan and prepare a meal say for tomorrow what is the dish that you would make to impress people okay i'm really good at frying stuff and i'm really, i'm really good at making biscuits and i know a lot about wine so there would be these elements i love eating outside So we would be outside. There would be a lot of wine. I don't know if it's dinner, maybe not biscuits. There could be a cobbler. I might make you a cobbler because I'm really nice with a cobbler, a drop biscuit cobbler. And then frying stuff, gosh, we could be eating rice. I love rice. I'm I don't I we could do basmati. The African rices are the Oriza glaborima. They're different, more nutty. I love these rices, so we might do some of that. I'm really good at making rice. That's a good thing to be good at. And yeah, frying stuff. So we would fry something from wherever we are. I'm in Georgia. We could maybe get some shrimp from the coast of Georgia. We could maybe snapper wow. from the Gulf, and then I could fry shrimp. and some snapper with fish and cobbler and champagne and that would be a nice time for us. I love it. I may not drink champagne because I don't drink, but Okay, but you don't I will have everything. Okay, but else. wait. Are we oh, we're planning it. I thought this was one of those like last meal situations. Don't even worry about <laughs> it. So yeah, that's that's uh an impromptu convening. I love it. So, Stephen in the end, if you were to define America in a word or a sentence how would you do that <laughs> gosh that is such a difficult question i i <laughs> i don't know i i think so many things we know when i really think about the core of the country again thinking about origins origins tell us who we are right and the the foundational origins of what we are calling the United States of America which needs to be separated from 
America. The origins of this country are violent and exploitative. That's how we were born. We killed and we stole. I'm not sure we didn't ever sit with it. We just got older. Absolutely. I love it. I love it. In addition to High on the Hog, are there any books, any resources that you want listeners to go to if they want to know more about the origins of different foods, including African, Asian? Um, where should they go? Yes, there's an incredible resource called Whetstone Media. <laughs> We have uh, created an entire media company <laughs> around this exact concept print magazines, digital publishing. We have a podcast network with 10 different shows, including um, a show uh, from India called Bad Table Manners. Um, we have a whole entire editorial vertical dedicated to South Asian foodways. Um, Vidya Balanchandar is our editor for Whetstone South Asia, doing an incredible job. Um, some of the very best forage and foraging on South Asian cuisine, you know, that can be found. Um, and we're continuing to do a lot more in film or print that will continue to expound around these themes. So we're very serious about food origins. We really think it teaches us so much about who we are and that there's so much power that comes from that image of self. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Stephen. This was so good. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Sadia. So how did you like the episode? I hope you loved it as much as I did. Please do share your thoughts with us at info at immigrantlypod.com. You can always DM us on Instagram at immigrantlypod or Twitter at immigrantly underscore pod. Our goal through this podcast is to create more nuance around storytelling in America and to be as authentic as possible. So send us your suggestions. If you have any thoughts, you can even send us voice memo and we may play it during one of our podcast episodes. And in the end, if you haven't subscribed to our Patreon, please consider doing that for as low as $5 a month. This episode was produced by me, written by Yudi Liu. Our editorial review for the re-release was done by Shay Yu. And our editor for this re-release is Hazek Ahmed Farid. Until next time, take care.